Welcome to episode 10 of Deconstructing the Magic Money Tree. Joining me as usual tonight, I'm delighted to welcome David Scott to the program. Hello, Mike. It's good to be back. Uh, it is good to be back. It's 18 months since we last recorded an episode. And when we left episode nine, we said that the next episode would discuss why we believe the banks should never be bailed out. A lot's happened since then. And we thought we would cover a topic that's uh, a little more appropriate, perhaps for the the present day, which of course is the issue of inflation. And uh, for this episode, we're, we're going to give a, an overview, a broad picture of the situation. And in coming episodes, we'll get more into the detail of this. So I thought we would start off, David, with the question of uh, of what is inflation? There's been a lot of discussion about this, uh, of course, in the mainstream press. The usual explanation for it is that there are supply chain issues, that there's availability problems for for goods and services, uh, not only because of manufacturing uh, not happening in China because of their COVID zero policy, but also because of shortages of staff in uh, in Europe and in the UK and in the United States uh, as a result of uh, COVID and uh, the, the struggle to find uh, people uh, following lockdowns and so on, but also the shortage of staff as a result of illness, continuing illness. So the first question that I have is for you is, is that a correct definition or is it at least in part a correct definition? I don't think it is. Um, we covered in News Extra a little look at the Reserve Bank of Zimbabwe and what it was saying as it was in the process of doubling the money supply in six months. And it was saying that there was lots of things. Exchange rates were to blame. Putin was to blame. Supply shocks were to blame. And all the, the inflationary pressures would be contained with a wise operation of, of the Reserve Bank of Zimbabwe. And at no point did they point to themselves and say, it's the money printing, it's the money generation that's to blame. We've seen this very plainly in the UK. If you look at the Bank of England's own publications on quantitative easing on the money generation uh, process that they've been going through, they clearly say in that documentation, this causes inflation, this is inflation. And yet now when the uh, all the birds have come home to roost, where we have a crisis of affordability, of the cost of living, and it's now into the political realm, the politicians just fail to mention this issue of money generation and the size of the money supply and the increase in the money supply at all. Now, this takes us to the, the famous quote by, by Milton Friedman, uh, the Chicago School economist, um, who said, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon in the sense that it is and can be produced only by a more rapid inc increase in the quantity of money than in output. Later in that same quote, the, the famously fence-sitting Milton Freeman then said, essentially, but a little inflation's okay. Right? And this is, this is what's one of the things that's wrong with the Chicago schools, this compromise, you talk a good free market game, and then there'll be a compromise with the basic principles which is a weakness um, that is quite common in economists. Uh, but Milton Freeman also said inflation is taxation without legislation, which takes into, the idea, into account the idea of its theft. It, it's it's a, a stealthy way of removing your earnings, your assets, without you realising. And as we talk through this today, I think that's a subject that will come up again. The idea that it's essentially about the 
retail price index or the consumer price index and rising prices is flawed. It always originally meant it was an increase in the money supply and specifically an increase in the money supply that was in some, some way illegitimate or uh, not based on anything real. It wasn't based on a commodity money and people mining more of that commodity money and, and putting real work into that. It was based on creation of the money by printing press or by um, a bank ledger entry uh, so that the money supply is increased and it doesn't relate to anything in the real economy. And then all of that money floating around eventually has to go somewhere and it tends to go, as has been recognised for a long time, into higher prices. Well, thanks for that, David. Perhaps to, a, a way of illustrating this would be to have a look at some historical examples. So so I can think of three off the top of my head that I'd like to discuss. The first one is debasement of coinage. That ha- has happened historically in two ways. One is by snipping the edges of the coins. And, and that's one of the reasons why modern day coins have a serrated edge so that uh, people can't do that anymore. Uh, the other one was when kings and queens and so on and governments introduced so-called base metals into precious coins like gold and silver and so on and, and debased them that way. Uh, another example, perhaps, uh, is the greenback dollar being a paper currency ended up having too much of it printed. Uh, but even paper currencies, if we go back into deep history, into China and the Song Dynasty, uh, and they were printing uh, paper money, which they overprinted, as is the tendency, resulted in uh, huge inflation in China. So when the Ming uh, Dynasty uh, replaced Song Dynasty, they got rid of the paper money and went back to, well, in this case, copper coins. So just three examples demonstrating that inflation in history has not been on the supply-demand side uh, in the sense of the availability of goods and prices going up as a result of a lack of availability of goods, but much more because the coinage or the paper was debased. Yes, and these examples, you know, as you point out here, go back millennia. The Roman, the case of the Roman denarius being one of the most famous, the denarius was a, a silver coin. It was what a Roman soldier would be paid a day. And it started off at uh, 4.55 grams, and that was a 172nd of the, of the Roman pound. And it was a very high purity, uh, 95 to 98% purity. So that's where it started. And it was devalued at least eight times before it became essentially worthless. It was taken down in weight. Then it was taken down in purity, down to 93% purity. And then it went down to 83% purity. And it went down to 50% purity. And then it became something that was called a denarius, but really was not no longer recognisable. So what happened during this debasing of the currency was the Roman people lost purchasing power. They got less and less able to provide for themselves, to provide for their families. And why was it happening? Well, it was happening to fund wars. And that's a, that's a, a theme that keeps coming up. And it was also happening to fund um, social programs, you know, bread and circuses. Looking at this idea of debasing silver coinage, I was looking for an example um, that's more recent. And uh, I came across the the idea of of a Ford Mustang, which was a car launched in 1965 in the United States, and it cost $2,500 in 1965. Now, it costs $27,000 to $37,000, depending on the model. 
which obviously means that if you're two and a half thousand dollars, you've only got a deposit. You're a long way off of being able to afford the car. If, however, you'd two and a half thousand 1965 silver dollars, you could still buy the car and you'd have some change. So what's happened to the, the purchasing power of the dollar is it has been destroyed. It would appear that the car's more expensive. The car's not really more expensive. The car's probably a little cheaper and it's a lot better because we're better at making cars. What's actually happened there is that the, the value of the dollar has collapsed uh, since 1965. I mentioned the greenback dollar as one example of, of historical inflation. But of course, there's also the issue of colonial scrip. Yes. And, and the, the situation in America is fascinating because essentially it was, an, it was an attempt to debase the currency more or less the moment the colonists arrived. They had restrictions from the British crown. They couldn't mint their own coin and they couldn't generate their own currency. And it was also a requirement that they use hard money. right? So they were using Spanish dollar, which is a silver coin. And they were equating that to an exchange rate to the British shilling. And they, they, they actually started to fiddle with the exchange rates so that one silver coin wasn't trading at a fair rate to the, the other silver coin to try and game the system. And this became a pattern. When the Revolutionary War came along, uh, they introduced uh, the continental script. So this is a, an issue that's often held up by the people who favour modern monetary theory, um, the people who favour massive money printing and easy money policy, social credit people and all the rest point to this as a great success. And it's held up to be an example of, of what we should do. But it's an example of the com complete opposite. So I was looking at a, at a pro-alternative monetary theory website, and they described the situation at this, as this. The first act of the new Con Continental Congress was to issue its own paper script properly called the Continental. These were IOUs or debts of the revolutionary government to be redeemed in coinage later. Eventually, $200 million of Continental scripts were issued. By the end of the war, the script had been so devalued that it was basically worthless. So it was inflated away to nothing. They continue, but it still evokes the wonder and admiration of foreign observers because it allowed the colonists to do something that had never been done before. They succeeded in financing a war against a major power with virtually no hard currency of their own and without taxing the people. Franklin wrote from England during the war, the whole is a mystery, even to the politicians. How can we pay with paper for what had no previously fixed fund appropriately specified to redeem it? Thomas Paine called it the cornerstone of the revolution. So it's very good for war. Now, a, a few details about this, what they actually did. They issued $2 million and they said we would redeem it dollar for dollar in gold and silver at the end of the war. That went out into the, the society and there, was, there didn't seem to be any inflation. So they issued $6 million in 1775 and the issues increased every year. By 1779, they issued $140 million. And the prices rose and more and more money had to be printed to afford the cost of the war because of inflation. And then they started to target who was responsible for the inflation because inflation is bad. We are printing all this money that they started off. They had $10 million in the colonies at the start of the war in gold and silver, and they printed 200 million paper dollars. So who was responsible for the inflation? It's the greed of the merchants, right? They, they were inflamed with lust for gain and, and they need to be sorted out. And they were 
trying to get laws passed to confiscate people's property if they didn't accept the continental script at par. Uh, they wanted soldiers to seize estates for anyone who wouldn't accept the continental script. And they wanted the ever more sort of onerous coercion of the population. And none of this worked. 1780, the Congress rode back on its dollar for dollar promise and they said that they would redeem the continentals at a rate of 40 continentals for one dollar silver. And that was probably two and a half times what they were actually worth at the time. The bit that got me about this is an American writing at the time, looking at this situation, said the following. It becomes rules to learn from the catastrophe of our continental currency that money is upon a footing with commerce or religion. They all refuse to be the subject of law. It becomes the rules of free men to learn further that money is property and that the least attempt to lessen its value in our pockets and chests is taxing us without our consent. It's the highest act of tyranny. We have tried every art and device to keep up the credit of paper money except one. We have never yet tried the effects of being honest. If the, And the argument seems to be here that the cause of inflation is expansion of the monetary base, whether that's through debasement or through printing of paper, more and more paper, or in the modern age, of course, uh, more digital bits. If that is what inflation is, then what has been masking it in recent decades? Because we have seen uh, this massive expansion of the money supply in the last 30, 40 years in particular, and, and, and an accelerating expansion. So you know, we could say that if we go back 40 years, it was certainly happening, but nothing like it's been happening in the last five or 10 years. So what has been masking inflation up until this point? And by this point, I mean in the last six months when it's become obvious to everybody that it's happening. This has been asked very frequently because there has been huge amounts of money generation. The CPI has not only refused to become very high, it's been below the banks, the central bank's target. They're all, always telling us that the magical sweet spot for inflation is 2%. This is the uh, view of Milton Friedman, for example, that you can have a little bit of inflation and it's okay, that's fine. So 2% the sweet spot and we're going to get to 2%, but we've, we, oh, we've been under 2%, so we, we're going to have to generate more inflation and it's, it's not been happening. Now, this is where you get into the fact that it's more than just total money supply because there are other processes happening here. And there's two or three which are overlapping. I'll, I'll try and pick them out if I can. Firstly, you've got what's termed the velocity of money. There's been a lot of money printing that was done through the huge financial crisis. So there was a massive crash. House prices collapsed. People lost everything. There was a huge liquidity problem. There was an enormous bailout. There was what was termed austerity. There was a great deal of difficulty in, in matters economic. People responded to that in quite a rational way in that their propensity for holding cash went up. They got cash in, they didn't spend it. They paid down debt, which is a sensible thing to do because there'd been a huge debt bubble and everyone was over leveraged and they had too much debt. They, they started to pay down their debt. They started to increase savings. They didn't spend it. So velocity of what's termed velocity of money, which is simply the number you multiply the, mul the money supply by to get the total spending in the economy. 
Well, it's the rate it's the rate at which money is spent, effectively. Yeah, the, the number of times it turns around in a year, right? So it's a it's the it's the difference, it's the multiplier between money supply and total spending, right? So how many times the, the, the money circulates. So that went down hugely. So the money went up hugely and the velocity of money went down. Now that was based on real things, real events happening, and people were making real decisions about their lives. And this was still showing when the Trump um, bailout money that, that went to everyone in America. They all got a six hundred dollar, I think it was, check from the from the federal government, and a lot of people were saying, "Well, that'll that will trigger the inflation," but it didn't. There were still increasing savings and and drawing down debt, and the savings level in America went way up during COVID as people stacked away the money. But there comes a point where they change or there's, or there's so much savings that it exceeds their, their demand to hold money for, for a rainy day and they start to draw down that level of saving and the money then comes into the real economy and then it starts to generate price inflation. So in the period where the money is being generated, it's not simply money generated equals price inflation because there is a process that has to go through and that's going through real people making real decisions and if they decide no i'm not going to spend that if the banks decide no i'm not going to get fully loaned up because we got hammered that way before we are going to keep much higher reserves because we think the world's a lot riskier than we thought it was uh, before 2007 then the money is created, but it's, it doesn't end up circulating in the general economy. I mean, it doesn't generate, at least at that point, price inflation. And, and, and you know, you're talking about uh, the velocity of money collapsing in 2007, 2008. That's nothing compared to the collapse of, in the velocity of money as a result of COVID lockdown policy when economies effectively stopped dead. Well, quite. I mean, <laughs> trying to find anything that relates to the, the, the financial and economic effects of the COVID policy, uh, I've, I, can't, I can't come up with anything in the history of the world that actually equates to this because never before have most of the major economies across the entire globe shut down their, their economies overnight and together and coordinated and then just printed money to keep everything going in the meantime. Yes. It's been a huge experiment and we're now seeing the effects of that huge experiment. So so that's one thing is that the, the money that's generated has to go through real people who have agency and they will make decisions and the decisions that they make may not be the decisions that the governments and the central bankers want them to make. That's point one. Point two is... It doesn't happen all at once. The, the Trump handout was an unusual thing. Mostly the money generation is in through the financial system. And this is one of the more insidious aspects of inflation because not everyone gets the money at one time. If you go back to what the early writers, David Hume wrote about inflation in, in some of his sort of sporadic writings on e economics, and he talked about, well, if everyone got, if everyone's, bank balance, everyone's pocketbook had overnight twice the amount of money in it, it, it wouldn't do anything because prices would just rise accordingly and very quickly you would be back to where you were. Right? It wouldn't actually affect anything. Right? And that's where you're, you're starting to look at the ideas of the, the effect of the total quantity of money. But of course, that's not how it happens. It doesn't happen overnight. It happens over a period of time and it happens through a particular process. So when the money comes to the ones who first receive it, they go out and they spend it on what they want. So 
that then drives up prices in that particular area of the economy. And, and then the next people get a hold of that money and they go and spend it on what they want. So, so to, give a, to give a practical example of that, uh, most of the money expansion uh, that's happened in the last period of time has, as you said a few seconds ago, gone into the financial markets. And so we've seen massive expansion in uh, the stock market valuation and so on. Bond markets the same to a large degree. And of course, that feeds in terms of the real, well, in terms of the economy that most people experience, that feeds into one area in particular. And of course, that's house prices because mortgages are a very big part of the financial system. And so we've seen absolutely catastrophically large house price inflation in the last 40 years. And, and, at the, and at the end of the COVID pandemic, when the economy was shut down and, and industry was producing less than ever before, house prices went up and not, not by a small amount. No. They were going up daily. And so we see, as you're very clearly making the point, we see that inflation is not a universal thing. It's not a single figure that applies to every item in the economy. It, it starts to appear in one place first and then migrates its way through the various areas of the economy over a period of time. Yeah. So the, the American who said we haven't tried honesty was was onto the right the right basic principle here because it's not honest. It's, it's essentially counterfeiting and it's stealing value from existing money in circulation, but it's not doing it equally. So the people who get the money first, they spend the money, they get the benefit because the general price level hasn't reacted. They can they can get the extra money and get things that benefit them. And that tends to be in the financial sector. It tends to be to the benefit of the bankers. It tends to be to the benefit of the financial institutions, uh, the City of London, and a, a certain substratum of society that's politically well-connected and in, in that particular field. Now, it then moves out, and, and it, was, it was Hayek that described this as like pouring honey onto a, a cake or a biscuit or something. It doesn't s- spread out immediately. It kind of stacks up in one place and then only gradually s- spreads out across the surface. So this is, this is what happens. So that the people who get the money first they get the benefit of the extra money without the without prices inflating. The people who get it later get less of a benefit until you get to the people who get it last. And they, they don't really see much of a benefit, but they have all the extra prices, all the extra cost of living to, to cope with. So what it is is a real and very severe wealth transfer from the have-nots to the haves. It's from the people who are hit most severely are those in fixed income, so you know, pensioners uh, and uh, people on, on welfare benefits and the people who, who benefit most greatly are the ones who are closest to the, the creation of the money, which tends to be the banking and financial sector. So th- there's that aspect, and that's another part of the reason why it's not immediately become apparent in uh, price inflation. You've then got a follow-on from that, which is because you're sp- moving real value and real purchasing power away from the poor and towards the rich, that actually changes the economy because the demand moves. So industry reacts and the actual structure of industry and what it's able to produce changes. And it's it gets better at producing very high-end things and worse at producing the more mundane things that everyone might like to have, like food. This changes the structure of the entire economy. And that's not 
that doesn't happen overnight and it can't be corrected overnight. And it's not a good thing. It's not, it's not a good thing. And you've then got a tendency also to throw uh, a lot more money at higher end capital goods. So a lot more, a lot more money goes into investment because these investments look very good because there's a lot of there's a lot of capital about and inflation's still low. Yeah, inflation's low. It's okay. And the, the bank says inflation's going to stay low. So we're going to invest in capital goods and we're going to build some factories and it's all going to be fine. And of course, by the time that capital infrastructure is created and inflation is, has kicked in, all of a sudden the raw materials for that factory are much more expensive. The labour for that factory is much more expensive and the factory might no longer be viable. So you've got this dislocation that causes the, the further sort of boom and bust problems. So it has a lot of effects that are overlapping and complex, but they're all based on the the, the underlying concept which the American gentleman got, which is we should try honesty. It's not honest money. And because it's stealthy theft from one group to another group, that's no way to run a healthy economy. And the effects of that are, are many varied and negative. Yes. Now, look, I want to go into this next topic in more detail in another at another time, but let me just put this to you. I'm not really sure where this quote came from, but let's just, I've, I've got another quote to follow it up. If economic growth matches the growth of the money supply, inflation should not occur when all else is equal. A large variety of factors can affect the rate of both, for example, investment in market production, infrastructure, education, preventative health care can all grow the economy in greater amounts than the investment spending. And so the question is, is that true? I'm going to also give you a quote from Von Mises, who I know you're a fan of, who said that inflation should refer to an increase in the quantity of money that is not offset by a corresponding increase in the need for money. And that price inflation will necessarily follow always leaving leaving a nation poorer. The implication of that is that if there is an increase in the need for money, then an increase in the quantity of money will balance out and therefore you will not have inflation. So is it true that it's not the case in your view that uh, an increase in the amount of money is necessarily a bad thing? There has been... what. Because, because it seems to me that, just to follow on from that, it seems to me that if you have a growing economy uh, and you you have uh, limitations on the ability to expand the money supply in line with that economic growth, then you effectively stifle that economic growth. No, you don't do that because price sorts everything. If, if you had uh, a lot of growth and, and, and very little change in the money supply, then what would happen is you would have a more rapid deflation, you would have the value of the money would increase. Now, let, let me give you a couple of examples to try and answer that question. Uh, firstly, if you look at the 19th century, um, principally British experience, because the 19th century was a British century, from the end of the Napoleonic Wars, now the Napoleonic Wars were inflationary, because wars always are, through to 1914, you had a, a, a steady increase in the value of money, a steady deflation. So the, the money that it required to buy a loaf of bread, to buy, uh, to, rent a, to rent a house for a family, whatever it had to be, in 1820 was more than the monetary value that was required at the end of that period, in, before the First World War. 
So the savings could be held and the, the, save, the value of the savings without interest from banks or anything else, the value of the savings would increase. A, a silver coin can be put away and, and, and 75 years later it could be taken out and it's worth more than when it was put away. It was a reasonably gentle deflation and it was accompanied by a huge increase in productivity because this was the industrial revolution was taking off. So you had a vast increase in the real wages of ordinary people. You had a big development in the country, and it was, generally speaking, a time of relative, relative to what had gone before, plenty. And it was deflationary. If you look at Britain immediately after the First World War, there was an attempt to go back onto the gold standard at the original rate, so that it, it basically to to the, the the war was inflationary, so the the value of the pound had dropped because a lot more pounds had been created to fight the war, and the the decision was made. Well, we're going to go back onto the pre-war standard, so there was a very very rapid deflation there, and that caused huge problems in the in the society and in industry. For example, the huge increase in the value of money meant that there was a huge increase in the purchasing power of workers' take-home salary. But a disincentive to actually reflect that in by, by paying them less in nominal terms. It's a highly unionised society. The unions were very powerful. So the wages stayed high and British industry failed to be economic on the world stage and we were a country based on exports. So we had a huge, during the Roaring Twenties, what America called the Roaring Twenties, we had a huge decline, a huge industrial decline. Essentially, our own depression was in the Twenties. My grandfather, who worked in a steelworks, was made unemployed in 1930, basically at the end of that process, because the steelworks shut, because the industry was closing down, because the, the monetary policy had made British industry as a whole uncompetitive in the world stage overnight. So that was a more extreme version of the same thing. They tried to pull the same trick that happened after the Napoleonic Wars, but they did it far too quickly and bad things happened. Now, across the pond in America, with the Roaring Twenties, we had no inflation, partly, as measured by, um, or not much inflation, as measured by increasing prices, uh, with a lot of money creation, we had vast optimism and everything was going to be fine. But what was happening there was a vast increase in productive capacity, right? America was going through industrialization even more rapidly than we had. Their productivity had gone up enormously. What should have been happening as real prices were falling, money printing was covering that, but the CPI was okay. So did that work out well? Well, no, because then you had 1929, the Great Crash, and you had a, you had the Great Depression. So it's it's more complicated than just price level. It's it's to do with the whole structure of industry and the whole structure of society and how you're interacting with people across the whole globe. And the situation in America shows that you can have. Uh, you can have a, a catastrophic inflation that's masked by in, in, increase in efficiency and productivity and still goes horribly, horribly wrong 
which it did in 29 and 30 in America. Oh, okay. Well, like I say, I want to come back to this because I think there's much more to investigate on this issue. Uh, we'll come back to this at another time. So th- then the question is, just to end this little section, David, is inflation ever positive? I was looking for an example for you. This comes back to the, the period after the First World War in Britain that I was telling you about. The problem was the revaluation of the pound back onto the gold standard at the pre-war rate had increased real wages enormously and made British industry uneconomic. The power of the unions was very great and included quite a lot of violence and intimidation and the threat of revolution. I mean, this wasn't long after 1917 in Russia, so there was a lot of anxiety about the stability of the country. The decision was made to solve this by devaluing the currency. And it was a decision, it was, a, it was most certainly a decision. We're going to get out of this problem by printing money. And what that did is it lowered the real value of wages without the workers realizing, at least initially, what was being done to them. So it was a trick, right? It, but it lowered the high wage rates and it, and it, it brought um, British industry into a much more competitive situation. It generated a genuine boom. I mean, if you look at uh, Britain in the 1930s compared to America in the 1930s, uh, Britain repassed America as the number one economy in, in the world during the 1930s because America was doing so badly. And we were doing really quite well. Certainly from 1936 onwards, it was boom time. Uh, if you look at housing construction, if you look at all the bungalows that that proliferate all across our great land, they were all put up in three years between 36, 37, 38, they all went up. All the cinemas went up. There was a, a, a great lift. And the chancellor, chancellor who made that decision was greeted as, as, in fact, in many ways, it's still regarded as one of the greatest chancellors we ever had. His name was Neville Chamberlain. And that, some people would hold that was a good so that's the, that's the closest I could find. It was a trick. Yes. It was a defrauding of the workers. It was needed because of the previous mistake with the far too rapid increase in the value of the currency and the problems that came from that. So it was a, it was a, a problem created by monetary policy and they tried to solve it by monetary policy. Right. And so so basically the answer is no. Basically the answer is no. Okay. So we've got two two uh, areas to have a look at here and we're running out of time. So so let's just uh deal with these very quickly. And again, the, these are this this next section is probably one where we're gonna to, going to want to come back to. But the question is what are the mechanisms that the bank, the central banks deal with inflation uh in the modern world? And of course this comes down to monetary policy. Uh, and in the case of the Bank of England, the activities of the Monetary Policy Committee, what do they have uh, in their arsenal to deal with inflation? They have interest rates. Uh, they have wage controls, although the wage controls probably more uh, government related, and they have price controls. Interest rates, we're in a very, very special time where we've just come out of a vastly extended period of Almost zero interest, zero percent interest rates, and in some cases, some countries negative interest rates. But actually, if you take inflation into account, David, as you've made this point many times, 
even though we may have had a notional 0.25% positive interest rate for the bank base rate. In fact, when you take inflation into account, that equates to a negative interest rate. So uh, now we're saying we're, we're entering a period where they're saying, oh my goodness, inflation, at least we're talking about inflation in the sense of the CPI, uh, is starting to rise into double figures. It could go as high as 15%, they're, they're suggesting. Uh, and they're still in cloud cuckoo land, in my opinion, there. But in any case, they've started in, in, increasing interest rates. Uh, and the Bank of England has gone 0.25%, 0.25% each month, 0.25%. And now they're saying that in the next month, in the next after the next Monetary Policy Committee meeting, it's likely to go up by half a percent. Um, that's not going to make any difference whatsoever. No. No, because real real interest rates are still hugely negative. When um, interest rate policy was used in the 70s and 80s, uh, particularly 80s, uh, to drive down inflation, we were looking at 16% interest rates. Twenty, I think the Americans hit 20% or very close interest rates. And that was in a situation where overall level of indebtedness was very low. Government level of indebtedness was very low. Are any of those tools really available? Because they always hold the interest rate policy as the number one tool we're going to use for, for controlling inflation. And everything else is, is the one tool that they talk about. Um, is that really going to work? Because the idea is, right, we drive up interest rates, we put mortgages go, go up, probably rents do. Um, if people are buying a car, the car loan will be more expensive. So they, they, they buy less. So there's less total spending in the economy, the velocity of money goes down and the price level comes down. That's kind of the thing. But are they really able to take interest rates to a level where it's going to affect the sort of inflation that we've now got baked into the system? It's by no means clear that, that, that they can. Because how much before 50% of your total taxation revenue is going on government debt maintenance? And at that point, does your whole government and society default? And given the fact that it's pension funds and the likes that hold a lot of this debt, what does that do to society? These are very, very fundamental and significant decisions for the whole society. Just as the, the decision to go back to gold after the First World War blighted the, the British economy for at least a decade, these are decisions that will that have huge ramifications that go out, go out years from where we are. Um, and then the other ones you mentioned. I mean, well, these, these no, are, hold on. Let's let's come on to wage controls because, of course, uh, the current narrative from the Bank of England, from Andrew Bailey, and so on is well, we're going to put interest rates up. We appreciate that this cost of living is going higher, but. Of course, his argument is if the government or public sector or the private sector start increasing salaries to match inflation, that's only going to drive inflation even harder and you end up in an inflationary spiral. So you've got to reduce the, the wage rises that, of course, naturally people are demanding from their employers. But in fact, once you start imposing those types of wage controls, whether they're formal or informal, um, we end up exactly where we are with almost every industry sector or institution now balloting their uh, having their members or their their uh, employees balloted for strike action um, and we're seeing 
massive industrial unrest coming in the coming weeks and months. So that is disastrous for the economy as well. Indeed it is. Indeed it is. And what happens if if you're successful in putting in wage controls? Because wage controls are just another form of price control. And what do price controls give you? Shortages. If, if, If you artificially hold the price of anything, including the price of labor, below the free market clearing rate, you'll have a shortage. If you put a floor under it and say you can't pay people less than this, or you can't buy a pint of milk for less than this, you'll have you'll have surpluses. You'll have you'll wine lakes and things that the EU had for so many years because they put they put price floors in to support farmers. It's known and it's very readily understandable that price and wage controls don't work. The price controls don't work because they produce shortages and wage controls don't work because they produce huge society-wide strife. If the state has enough determination and a willingness to use violence, I suspect, to force it through, then only at that point do you see that what it produces is actually a shortage of labour. Those three areas are something we're going to come back to in subsequent programmes. But I just wanted to end this episode, David, with something you said earlier on in the programme, and that was the terms war and bread and circuses. And the question that I have is, does war and bread and circuses, as you described it, drive inflation or does inflation drive war and bread and circuses? And I think this is a very important point because there has been, to my mind, a recognition, whether it's been admitted or not, there has been a recognition amongst anybody that's in any way capable financially or economically. There's been a recognition for a very long time now that uh, the at least as far as Western financial system is concerned, it's, it's effectively bankrupt. It's been bankrupt for a very long time. It's been kept going by, as we've pointed out in this program, printing more and more money. But it seems to me that if we look at how that money has been used, it's been used, A, to prop up some markets. I'm talking about financial markets here, which should have been allowed to collapse and banks, which should have been allowed to collapse. But B, it has been used to fund everything from from the military-industrial complex to uh, the mainstream media to think tanks uh, and other non-governmental organizations that are currently in the process of pursuing a certain type of economic, uh, a certain type of, of governmental policy, including not not limited to, but including uh, the Great Reset and other similar uh, policy areas. Clearly, we in the last, not particularly in in the last year, but for the last twenty years, we have been effectively in the as far as the West is concerned in a state of perpetual war with some country or other. Uh, and sometimes many countries at the same time. We've been funding insurgencies in many parts of the world. Um, and the, obviously, the, the latest Ukraine situation is just the latest in a whole range of conflict. And so the question is, is inflation the result of this conflict or is the inflation driving this conflict? And my feeling is that it's the the, the printing of money has driven that conflict. And so... I'm just interested in your thoughts on on that. Yes, I I would agree with that. Whatever you look at at, um, inflationary policy, you see war. 
And the idea of the Western model, the welfare warfare state, is the, the finest flowering of, um, of a state that's unaffordable. And everyone recognises that the debt can never be paid back. And in fact, we've even had people at the Fed announce publicly that it's a Ponzi scheme. They'll say, well, you know, we need to borrow more in, in order to pay back the previous loans because it can never be paid off. And the wars that we're, we've seen and the wars that we're seeing now can't be afforded and can't be justified to a people when there's a hard money policy in place. Because if it was actually funded by real taxation, taking real resources away from real people, there would quickly be a demand to stop it. And instead, it's always associated with loose money, with promises of pay tomorrow. And um, this generates the apparent resources for destruction. The question now, though, having lived with the welfare warfare state for so long and having seen its finest flowering in the war against COVID, which was all fought by money printing, by borrowing against tomorrow and not worrying about anything real, not, not worrying about whether we were producing anything as, a, as an economy. We can close everything down. Realities, neither here nor there. What, people actually going out to work and making things, that's unnecessary. We could have an economy if we just have the monetary circulation that looks like an economy. We don't need real things. And we've done that. It doesn't seem to me that interest rate policy is viable as a solution. And wage and price controls aren't. Are we therefore facing inflation that, that isn't going to stop at 15% or anything like it? Are we really looking at um, the Reserve Bank of Zimbabwe um, techniques where we're going to be talking about inflation as a monthly figure, not an annual one at some point? Maybe we are. And are we going to see more of this if there's more war? That one's absolutely certain. If there's war, there will be inflation. There always is. Okay. Well, on that note, we'll leave it for today. We're going to do much more on this in the coming uh, weeks. Uh, we uh, deconstructing the magic money tree is back. I think it's be, it's it's more important now than it was when we began this series, David. And uh, let's see let's see what comes next. But in the next edition, we'll we'll deal uh, we'll go into a little bit more depth. Uh, we'll choose one of the topics that we've discussed tonight and go into a little bit more, bit more depth on it. So I'm going to say thank you very much for joining me tonight and uh, look forward to the next one. Yeah, it's been a real pleasure to be back. It is, it is interesting that Magic Money Tree stopped when real economy, economics stopped during the COVID crisis. Uh, and uh, we are back now that uh, reality has uh, reasserted itself and uh, it's good to be back. Yep. Okay, well, we'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye.